<clears throat> you will notice that um, this week I took your notes for you. Actually, the back side of the paper is for you to take notes. The front side of the paper is for you to uh, take home as a reminder of the challenges that we face and the challenges that I intend to give you this morning. A few weeks back, I shared a story out of Danny Silk's book, Keeping Your Love On, or Keep Your Love On. It was a story about a husband and a wife that came to Danny wanting counsel concerning their out-of-control teenage son. What Danny noticed and acted on was the fact that the couple were actually disconnected from one another. And no doubt that their practiced disconnect with one another was part of the reason why their son was acting out. Danny makes the point in the story that we were all doing one of two things in our relationships. We're either moving toward connection or disconnection. We're either speaking the language of connection or we're speaking the language of disconnection. We're either practicing one or we're practicing the other. Diane Fittipaldi of 2013 Sunset Lane told her municipal judge, Levi Grantham, that she had launched the attack as part of a long-standing feud with her husband about housekeeping. Oliver is a horrible, neat freak, Fittipaldi said, and he drives me nuts about keeping everything tidy. After the couple had argued about the proper alignment of table settings, Fittipaldi rented a 3,000-pound pneumatic tire forklift Tuesday evening and drove it through the front wall of their one-story house. According to neighbors who witnessed the incident, she used the machine to then smash the dining room table. Well, Oliver yelled at me about where the fork was supposed to go, she said, and I figured I'd fix it with a forklift. <laughs> the neighbor said Fittipaldi seemed wild-eyed and distraught during the attack, kept screaming, fork this, at her husband, who took refuge in the kitchen. That is actually a true story. The moral of that story is never marry a woman who knows how to operate heavy machinery. <laughs> Actually, the real moral of that story is that our practiced disconnection from one another has consequences. And those consequences aren't pretty. We allow ourselves to remain disconnected long enough, and it will affect our thinking, which in turn affects our actions. That idea got me to thinking about our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. How are we practicing connection with one another? Are we practicing connection with one another? Because this I know, if we're not practicing connection with one another, by default, we're practicing disconnection. There is no middle ground because we're either gaining ground or we're losing ground in this area. The problem with disconnection is not that it's something that we really think about. It's usually a result of ingrained behaviors that slowly and surely get worse over time. Somewhere in the process of it getting worse, we actually allow ourselves to believe that we're better off for the distance that we create. We're safer. We're more peaceful, more restful. Perhaps we even deceive ourselves into thinking that we're happier somehow. Nothing could be further from the truth. The truth is that we were created for connection. 
for community, for intimacy. The enemy, of course, has a different plan for us. From the Garden of Eden, he has been tempting mankind to disconnect from God and to disconnect from one another. Think about what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Yes, that's true. We all know that. That's how the fall of man came about, right? But what really happened there? The enemy convinced them to do what God had told them not to do. And as soon as they did, they disconnected from God. You can see it in Adam's response to God. God asked Adam, what did you do? And Adam said, the woman that you gave me did this, okay? You see the disconnect? Okay, he disconnected from her, he disconnected from God, all in one fell swoop. And you know what? We've been doing this disconnect ever since. We bought into the lie then, and it's what we practice now. James 4 one through three says this, where do you think, oh, by the way, I'm reading this out of the Message Bible because I, I love the way that Eugene handles this, okay? Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from? Do you think they just happen? Think again. They come about because you want your own way and fight for it deep inside yourselves. You lust for what you don't have and you're willing to kill to get it. You want what isn't yours and will risk violence to get your hands on it. You wouldn't think of just asking God for it, would you? And why not? Well, because you know you'd be asking for what you have no right to. You're spoiled children, each wanting your own way. Ouch. I know this passage seems a bit harsh. When was the last time you murdered somebody? Hadn't happened for me yet, you know just because you didn't get your way. But consider again how Jesus defines what murdering somebody is. Matthew 5.21. You have heard that the ancients were told do not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable in court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Ow. Now how many times do I commit murder in a day? And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Ow. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. It's getting warm, isn't it? Jesus is talking about the language of disconnection. More specifically, He's talking about how we create distance from one another. And we do this pretty regularly, don't we? We do this between the people that we love the most and us, but we also do it with strangers. It's something that the enemy has worked and ingrained into our behaviors. James 3, verse 3 says, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. 
Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire. A whole world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praising and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. I agree with James. This should not be. But the question is what to do about it. Like I said, we're dealing with ingrained patterns of communication and interaction with one another. Stuff we've learned and practiced our whole life long. That's what we're dealing with. So let's take a moment. I'm going to pray and then we're going to kind of jump into what does it take to move from disconnection to connection, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that you are the God of connection. You created us in your image because you desired connection for us with you. And even in how you created us, you created us for community. You created us for a bonding between one another. You created us to be the body of Christ, totally intimately connected because you, Father God, are totally and intimately connected with Jesus and your Holy Spirit, and you want us to experience the same thing in our connections with you and with other people. So, Father, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, but more than anything this morning, hearts to respond because this is about taking action. Father, it's just not about good thoughts. So give us hearts to respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anyone know how to go about breaking a bad habit? A little louder. Okay. Doing the opposite, really, until the opposite becomes the new habit, right? You know, Experts disagree to some degree. 21 days, 30 days, they pick a number, but it's out there somewhere, right? It's not one day, okay? That ain't going to work, okay? It's not a week. That ain't going to work, okay? And depending on how ingrained some of your behaviors are, it may take more than 30 days. But this they do agree on. You have to pursue something other than what you've been doing. You have to do the opposite until the opposite becomes the new habit. So I want to talk about what that might look like. Actually, I need to explain something before I go any further. You need to know that I'm not really expecting my words this morning to suddenly bring about change in the way that you relate to one another. I'm not naive enough to believe that my words would carry that much weight. Most of what I have to say, you'll forget before you make it out the back door. Such is the weakness of human communication. They say that on the average, people retain only about 5 to 7% of any sermon that they hear. So I thought it, I would be proactive about that statistic this morning. Typically, I have about 3,500 words in my sermon, and yes, I actually do know how many words are in my sermons on Sunday mornings. I know this because I script my sermons, and I have a word counter on my computer that tells me where I'm at. That way, I know I'm not going to preach longer than I should Okay, 
That's kind of how I gauge things. So now, if I take 7%, because I'm being generous here this morning, not 5%, if I take 7% of 3,500 words, then I can expect you to remember somewhere around 250 words that I say this morning. So I'm going to try something new, a different approach. I'm going to give you the words I want you to remember. In fact, I printed them out for you. They're right in front of you. Now, before you get too excited, my sermon is still 3,500 words long. It has to be. Logically, it has to be. If I only gave you 245 words, you would remember only 7% of those. You need all 3,500 words in order to get the 250. Now, I said that for a reason. You have to get this. You have to get this, folks. You have to start putting those words into action. You have to become practiced in the art of connection because at the root of connection is love. And we are to be known as Jesus' friends because of the way that we love one another. The church, and I mean the church in the sense of every believer, the church has been practicing the language of disconnection for far too long. We do it across denominational lines as we don't like each other for what the other person does or doesn't believe that we do or don't believe. We do it within our own body, right here. And perhaps most damaging, we do it in our own homes, with our families. Like James, brothers, this should not be, period. The real question is, how do we change it? How do we move from disconnection to connection? How do we overcome ingrained patterns of self-destructive and damaging interaction? Pretty much the same way you break any bad habit. First, you recognize it for what it is, right? It's a millstone. You know, everybody know what a millstone is? Those are those big, big rocks, okay, that have been chiseled into looking something like a wheel, okay? And they stick a pole through the middle of those, around a post, and in a trough, they, they pulverize grain with them, okay? Big, heavy rocks. The language of disconnection, the habits of disconnection in our interaction are like a millstone hung around your neck that is dragging you down and damaging everyone around you in the process. That's the first thing you have to, you have to know that. That's what's happening. Because if you don't believe that, then you won't even want to change. Second, you need to release it. If you focus on your problem, you will make it bigger than it already is. No one ever overcame a bad habit by keeping it in the forefront of their thinking. Third, move in the opposite direction. It's always easier to move toward a positive than to move away from a negative. Having a plan an alternative option gives you a goal to pursue something better to occupy your thinking. To put it another way, if all I did this morning was to give you a list of what not to do, I would be arming you with only one food for thought, the one thing you don't want to do. And that's what you would think about. You would focus on what not to do, and that's what you would fill your heart with. That's what you'd be thinking about. That's dumb, stupid. It ain't going to work. It would be like giving a diabetic a job working in the Rocky Mountain chocolate factory. Okay? Just, it's not wise. Okay? So this is my plan. For the next few weeks, 
okay? I am going to walk through a series of thoughts bent toward the language of connection. My goal in this is to spark a revolution, to ignite a fire, to start a revival in this place, in this house. Literally, and don't take this wrong, I want to kick the holy you-know-what out of the enemy by stripping him of his power in our relationships because he's had way too much power for way too long. In fact, I wrote a declaration for this, and this is what I'm going to declare over this house. I declare that we will love God and love one another with increasing passion until the world recognizes that we belong to Jesus, and even then we will only just begun. Want to hear that again? I declare that we will love God and love one another with increasing passion until the world recognizes that we belong to Jesus, and even then we will only have just begun. That is the goal that we're going to move towards, the goal to keep in mind, the one thing to think about, nothing less How could we shoot for less? We can't. It's what Jesus said was most important. It's his commandment to us. Let's get it done. How? Well, with what time I have left this morning, I want to look at three ways that we can turn up the heat on the language of connection. Three primary ways the Bible tells us that we can make a positive connection with one another. Now, these are not the only three. That's why this is going to take a little while to get through the whole series, because the Bible speaks of many different ways that we connect with one another. I'm just going to start with three this morning. And the first one I want to start with is encouragement. It's one of the, the, the main players in connecting with one another. Does anybody here not want to be encouraged? See? We all want encouragement, right? It's a great way to connect with one another. I read this story from a pastor, and I thought I'd share it with you. He says, recently I stopped into a local sandwich shop with my wife to buy a sandwich and enjoy an hour or so of quiet time together. The cash register person, well, they have a tedious job. They deal with people who don't know what they want and need help. They deal with people who know what they want but talk too fast. They deal with people who are rude, in a hurry, out of money, and just plain lost in space. It is not always a pleasant job, and in most cases, it is a tedious one. How many times can you say, may I help you? With a smile on your face that is genuine. Keeping one's patience and looking fresh under all and any circumstances is a tall order when you stand behind a cash register. You might think about that when you go to the store or subway or someplace like that. When my wife and I stepped in front of the may we take your order sign, we knew what we wanted. So there was little that needed to be dealt with at that moment. We rattled off our order and handed the clerk our debit card. As Holly handed the debit card to the young lady, there was something about her that simply fascinated me. She had not stopped smiling pleasantly from the time she saw us park the car in front of the building until now. It wasn't that fake sort of disinterested practiced smile either. It was a real genuine happy smile. She spoke softly but clearly as she handled our card and the receipt with confidence and care. I looked at her jumper and saw the name April on her name tag. As we began to step away from the counter, I stopped and I I returned April. 
you have a wonderful smile, and I enjoyed buying that sandwich from you. Thank you for serving us. The words just came out like they'd been parked there at the, the tip of my tongue, idling, anxious to get out and get going. The little clerk looked up to me with that same smile and a slight glisten in her eyes. You're welcome. Nobody ever tells me that. Nobody ever tells me that. Those words surged into my heart at that moment, and a question came to my mind. Why don't we tell people that? Like the bumper sticker, commit random acts of kindness. Why don't we get up every day with the predisposition to go out into our jobs, homes, places of business with one primary goal being to encourage people? The opportunities are everywhere around us. People are hungry for words of encouragement. There is an old adage that people crave only two things more than money and sex. That's recognition and praise. If people need it so badly, why are we hoarding it from them? You know what? I love that story. That is a great reminder. And it's no different inside these walls. We all need to be encouraged, and we're all commanded to get it done. Hebrews 3.13, encourage one another every once in a while. No, actually, it says daily, okay? That's a practiced thing. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see what encouragement can do? It keeps our hearts soft toward what? God. Because when our hearts get hard, that's towards deceitfulness. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. 1 Thessalonians 9, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Encouragement is too important to not do. We need to do it for our kids. We need to do it for our spouses. And we need to stop tearing them down, building walls between us and them with our words of disconnection. So here's what I want you to do. It's written on the, the note sheet. So, you know, I want you to, to think about this. I want you to take it home, and I want you to actually practice this. Because if you don't, we're, we're not going to get anywhere with this. This has to be something that, that actually we do, folks. Here's where the 250 words come into play, by the way. Okay? I want you to remember what this is. Every one of these form a connection and are nothing more than lofty ideals if we don't actually do them, okay? If we don't actually practice them. We have to make them part of our thinking. We all know that the Bible tells us to encourage one another. I just read you some passages about that. It's a no-brainer. So let's do it. Number one, before you leave this place this morning, find at least two people to speak a word of encouragement to, okay? Did I miss something? Find two people before you leave this room this morning to, find, to, to, to speak a word of encouragement to. Can you do that? Yes. Oh, good. All right. I thought I was talking to the table. <laughs> Number two. Okay, sometime during this week, find a stranger this week and tell them that you appreciate something they do, like that story, okay? Uh, you know, if, 
If you go out to lunch, find the waiter, waitress, the cashier. Tell them you appreciate what they do. Watch that encouragement light them up. This next one I think all of us could do every day. Call somebody or text somebody, especially I get a lot of texts these days. Text is more prevalent than phone calls. Call or text. So you can do either one, okay? I'm cutting you a lot of slack here. Call or text someone in your family and let them know that you're thinking about them. Be a real risk taker and tell them that you love them. Okay? Encourage them. Now, if we're not doing this in our home, own, own homes, folks, it's really not going to work that well outside of the home. Okay? These things have to start where we live. It's important. Now, the second way of, of connecting that I want to talk to you about this morning is the language of exhortation. The Apostle Paul writes to his friend and his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4, he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Timothy was pastoring a church. He had kind of been raised up under Paul. He'd studied under Paul, so to speak. He'd watched Paul's life. And now Paul, in 1 and 2 Timothy, is writing letters to Timothy as he seeks to lead a church. And he says, Timothy, keep these things in mind. Do these things. Exhort, teach, read the scriptures. Exhortation in the New Testament Greek is the word paraklesis. Para meaning alongside, like parallel lines, okay? And klesis means to talk, to speak, or to pray. To exhort someone, then, is to come alongside that person and call out something in them, to recognize their calling, their destiny, some strength that they have for the purpose of seeing that thing become a reality in their life. That's what it means to exhort somebody. It's a call to action. It's a glance into their soul to see who they really are, who they were created to be in Christ, and then to call that into reality. That's what it means to exhort. I choose to call it gold mining because God has placed the gold in you what the goal is, is to reach in and pull that gold to the surface so that it can shine. I do believe with all my heart that God has placed amazing gold in each and every one of you. You have precious gifts and incredible destinies, and they need to be realized for everyone's benefit, including your own and the kingdom of God. Like the parable of the talents, God doesn't give us gold to bury it in the ground. We're supposed to invest it so that it will grow and flourish. How do we do that? By investing it in one another. By letting God use the gold he has placed in us to create the wealth of the kingdom. Which, by the way, the wealth of the kingdom cannot be stripped, it cannot be taken, it cannot be sold, and it cannot be bought because it is our relationship with God and with one another. That is the gold of the kingdom of God. When we exhort one another, we call the gold out of another person. Encouragement, folks, is about helping another person feel good, okay? That's what encouragement does. Puts a smile on the other person's face, you know? It can lift them out of the pit of despair. Encouragement is about making another person feel good. Exhortation is about helping another person do good by calling out of them what God has placed in them so that they can take action with that thing. 
Encouragement moves from the outside of a person to the inside of a person to change the way they feel. Exhortation seeks to move what is inside out to change the world around us. Does that make sense? Pastor Ed Skidmore tells a story that relates to this idea. He says, I can recall a memorable moment many years ago when Susan and I were taking Kimberly, she was age two at the time, and her slightly younger cousin, Abel, to church in the car. Kimberly was in a foul humor that morning, but her smiley-faced little cousin decided it was time for a word of exhortation. Though he could barely talk, he looked her in the face and said happily, Rejoice, Kimmy! We didn't think Abel even knew that word, but he certainly knew the context in which to use it. Since that time, we've often used Abel's exhortation whenever Kimmy's mood began to deflate. Folks, probably by the gift of the Holy Spirit, Abel was actually able to look into the heart of Kimmy, who was pouting at the time, and call out joy. That's pretty much what exhortation is all about, looking past the surface, the situation, the circumstances, and calling out something in another person that will change the atmosphere, challenge the situation, or reverse the circumstance. So here's your your exhortation challenge. And yes, it's on your sheet of paper because I don't want you to forget this, okay? By the way, there are exactly 252 words on your paper, okay? Just in case somebody's thought they'd count, okay? That means I'm two words over the 7%, all right? You'll have to cut me slack. Here's the challenge for exhorting this week. Number one. I want you to do some gold mining this week in your spouse or your children. Focus on a good quality that is within them and call it out. This is what I would call the proactive approach, okay? Doesn't mean that they have to be in the pit of despair, okay? Uh, It doesn't mean things have to be going wrong at the moment, okay? Just call out the gold that's within them. Now, if they're struggling in something, that's a great time, okay, whatever that is. If their mood is like Kimmy's gone south, okay, that's a great time. Make sure that what you reach in and grab hold of is very, very, very positive, okay? Exhortation is about pulling gold out, not lead, okay? And the only way you're going to get the gold to the surface is through positive words, All right? Number two, (laughs) this is going to be a real challenge, okay? But I really want you to think about this and go for it. Take a week off of focusing on the negative. Identifying failures and shortcomings in the people around you, even if they mess up. In other words, even if the negative is slapping you in the face right now, take a week off from focusing on it, okay? Use the mess up as an opportunity to speak into them a different identity, a positive image. This is what I I call the responsive approach, okay? The other's proactive. This is the responsive approach. Something's already gone south, okay? This takes some thought on your part. You can either react to negative things or you can choose to respond to them. The language of disconnect loves people who react because they speak and they act without much thought. Thoughtless words are dangerous. Choose to not react 
choose to respond. Choose to think about what Jesus would say or do before you engage. Can you do that? That's a whole week off, okay? I know this is a big challenge to, to rethink in your mind. You know, the minute you go to negative stuff, folks, you've got to repent and run the other direction, okay? Remember, repentance is about having a different thought. It's about moving in a different direction, okay? If that negative thing comes there, kick it where it <clears throat> hurts the most, turn around, and go the other way, Okay? One more. This last connection point that I, I want to challenge you with this morning is that of serving one another. Originally, I thought to call this one random acts of kindness. But in all honesty, that's not what we're called to do in the kingdom of God. We're not called to random acts of kindness. We're called to something much greater than that. So I've renamed it. I decided it should be called intentional demonstrations of fervent love. It comes from 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls with a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Serving one another, folks, should flow from the love that we have for one another through Christ. It's not that there's anything wrong with the idea of random acts of kindness. They actually prove that the image of God, who, by the way, is good all the time, right? Okay. It proves that the image of God is alive and well in people, even if they're not saved. I found this story by Pastor Michael McCartney. It says this, a young lady named Tiffany shared this with him. She said the Starbucks that she works at in normal Illinois, I think that's a really interesting name for a town, Normal, okay? Normal, Illinois, witnessed something amazing. A person in the drive through lane one morning near Christmas paid for the person behind them. It was a random act of kindness. But the amazing thing was that the next person did the same thing. It continued on for two days until it reached about 127 acts of kindness. And then finally, the chain of kindness was broken the next evening. It made the newspapers, and the president of Starbucks called to talk to the management of the store. She said, someone is writing a book about this. Listen, folks, even the world understands the power of an act of kindness. How much more powerful do you imagine intentional demonstrations of fervent love would be? Random acts of kindness? It's almost like they don't take much thought, you know? They're random. But an intentional demonstration of fervent love? You know, we talk about love a lot, especially loving one another. But did you know that talking about love is not actually loving? Thinking about love is not actually loving. Love requires an action because it finds its expression through action. This is why Jesus attached obedience to the command to love him. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. You see how he's attached action to the idea of love? There is an action attached to an idea that gives birth to a demonstration. 
God so loved, I love that, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yes, God so loved us, so he gave us Jesus. That's the action. To make his love clear to us, that's the demonstration. My wife's love language is words of affirmation. So she needs to hear the words from me that I love you. you know, that I, I need to say that. She, she needs to hear it on a regular basis. However, I guarantee you that those words, no matter how often they're spoken, would be meaningless if there was no action to back them up. Just be words. And there's nothing more damaging to a person with the love language of words of affirmation when they can't believe your words. There has to be a demonstration to go along with it. This is just a thought, okay? The Bible calls us to be light to the world, right? Right? Okay, good. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you agree. Because if not, then I have to go back and show you where it does. Okay? We talk about love and loving one another, but I'm pretty sure that talking is not going to get the lamp lit. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you catch that? God demonstrated. He did something. He didn't talk about how much he loved us. He didn't sit there on the throne of heaven and have loving thoughts towards us. He demonstrated his love towards us. So let me ask you, can we do less? Really? If we don't demonstrate our love, how will the world know to whom we belong? So here's your challenge. The last challenge for this week going forward. I know I've given you a lot to think about, but you know what? This is important. And we need to get the ball rolling here, okay? I am not going to kick this ball any longer. It needs to roll. Here's your challenge. Commit an intentional demonstration of fervent love towards somebody in the body of Christ this week. Remember, that passage says, to love one another fervently from the heart. And he's talking about believers, loving believers. You know why he's doing that? Because he knew we'd, be, we'd, we'd struggle with this one, okay? We wouldn't do it really well. So he wasn't even talking about, you know, Harry down the street who hates God. He's talking about other believers and exhorting us to love one another fervently from the heart because he knew it would be tough. You know what? an intentional demonstration of fervent love, that means you'll probably need to plan it and execute it. Intentionality kind of requires planning. Number two, this came from a long time ago, it's, but I'm going to kind of bring it back this morning. The idea of love bombing someone. Love bomb someone during this week that's not a member of your immediate family or your immediate circle of friends. Okay, in other words, somebody that you don't have that much interaction with, maybe a coworker or somebody. What is a love bomb? A love bomb is to do something out of love in the name of Jesus for somebody who needs to be touched by God. That's simply what love bombing somebody is. It's like you just walk over and boom, love, you know? Whatever that is. Remember, it's going to be an action of some sort, right? And, and in order to be intentional, you're probably going to have to plan it. So you're going to have to think about this one a little bit. Plan it in advance and then execute it. It's really not that hard. I'm, I'm only asking you to do this once in the whole week. I just have this feeling that if you do it like once, you'll want to do it again. Because this kind of stuff is fun to do. 
There you have it, okay? 252 words to remember. 250 words that will change your life this week if you choose to take them seriously and act on them. Now, I have done what I can do to bring this to your attention. The question is, what will you do? 1 Peter 4 says, each one of you use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. That's the challenge. That's the challenge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm excited about this challenge. I'm excited about uh, just talking about our relationships and, and watching those begin to change, begin to move deeper, deeper into you and deeper into one another. I so want this body of Christ to shine so brightly that the community around us wants to know, what on earth are those people taking? What on earth are they doing? Because they're different. And I like what I see. And I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, Father, that we cannot get there until we learn how to practice our connection with one another which means we actually have to do this. And I don't want to accept anything less than that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.